back to my multi-week study called A Bible Prophecy Timeline. It's being released as a video and as an audio on my podcast feed, both of which are available at BibleProphecyTalk.com. Today's episode is called The Resurrection of the Antichrist, and I've placed this event on the timeline after the palatial tense and after the Antichrist is killed, but just before the abomination of desolation. And right there I should point out that the bullet point for the Antichrist is killed, which I'm not doing a separate video for because the concept was covered in the last episode, but it might actually be misnamed. Because as we'll see, though I think that there is ample evidence to suggest that the Antichrist will resurrect from the dead, there are, as far as I know, no details as to how he dies. It simply says he has a mortal wound that was healed. Revelation 13.3 says, One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. It seems that this healing is one of, if not the main reason, that people marvel and follow him. Other translations tend to make this a little more clear. The Holman Christian Standard says, One of his heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but his fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. So it makes the causation a little more obvious. His mortal wound was healed which makes the world marvel and follow him. A lot of people reject the idea of the Antichrist being raised from the dead because they rightly argue that Satan cannot raise the dead. It's not one of his powers. For this reason, I tend to use the term apparent resurrection when I refer to this event, but I do that mostly as a courtesy to those people because it takes too long to explain that I believe that it's a real resurrection, not a fake one. But it's not Satan that does it, it's God himself. This is also the conclusion of Gregory Harris in his paper, Can Satan Raise the Dead? Toward a Biblical View of the Beast's Wound, published in the Master's Seminary Journal. Among other things, he points out that in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul is describing the resurrection event in which God is the one who sends the, quote, strong delusion associated with the revelation of the Antichrist at the midpoint. And he does so, so that the earth dwellers would believe the lie, which as we saw in Revelation 13, it does exactly that. It makes the earth dwellers believe the lie and follow and worship the beast. In context, this section of 2 Thessalonians 2 is about the revelation of the Antichrist at the midpoint. Paul talks about him sitting in the temple, declaring himself to be God. And then we come to this verse. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. As a side note, I was thinking a lot about this verse this week where it says uh, that they may believe what is false. The strong delusion God sends so that they may believe what is false. What is it that is false? Is it the resurrection itself? Is the strong delusion to make them believe that the resurrection happened when in fact it did not happen? No, the strong delusion is the resurrection. What is false is that he is who he says he is, God. It is, that's what is false, that the Antichrist claims are true. They follow and worship him as a result of the strong delusion because the strong delusion makes them believe what is false, that he is God or the Messiah or whatever he is claiming to be. So that's what is false here. The strong delusion, in effect, is the resurrection.
There are several verses that talk about the resurrection of the Antichrist other than Revelation 13.3, but I think an easy way for me to go through this is to quote at length from a verse-by-verse -verse study I did on Revelation 17 and 18 in my book Mystery Babylon, and I use the occasion of talking about Revelation 17.8 to talk about this issue in totality, so I'll play the audio from that right now. This next phrase was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. This phrase gives people a great deal of difficulty, and so we will spend quite a lot of time on it. I intend to show that this idea of was and is not and coming out of the bottomless pit is a title referring to the Antichrist's having been miraculously healed or resurrected from the dead. The last phrase in this verse, the beast that was and is not and yet is, being another way to say the exact same thing. That is, that he lives, he dies, and he seems to rise again, and will ultimately go to destruction or perdition. It's sort of a chronology of his entire career on earth, and it functions as a title on several occasions in the book of Revelation. Before I begin to explain the details of this, we need to refresh our memories to the significance that the Bible puts on the seeming resurrection of the Antichrist from the dead. Let's review Revelation chapter 13, which is primarily about the Antichrist, to make sure we understand this preliminary idea. In the relatively short chapter of Revelation 13, it mentions three times the fatal wound of the Antichrist beast that was healed, the first instance being in verse 3. It says, And I saw one of his heads, as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? It seems to imply here that the world's worship of the beast is directly connected to his deadly wound being healed. It says that they wondered after him, saying, Who can make war with him? This is the exact same word used in our current verse, wondered. And it is in the exact same context, that is, wonder from the earth dwellers associated with worship and the resurrection of the dead. This is one of the first descriptions of the Antichrist that we are given in the book of Revelation. Right after the symbolic imagery of verse 1 and 2, this is the first thing that we are told about the beast, that he has a deadly wound that is healed. The Bible, as we will see, considers this event very important, if not preeminent. By the second reference of this event in verse 12, the idea of a healed deadly wound has become a title or identifying description of the beast. Here it distinguishes between the first beast from the second by adding the clarification whose deadly wound was healed. And so it says in Revelation 13:12, and he, speaking of the false prophet, exerciseth all the power of the first beast, that is the Antichrist before him, and causes all the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And here in the third reference in 1314, we see that the healed deadly wound is again used as a title or distinguishing characteristic of the Antichrist beast. Here it says, and speaking of the false prophet here, he deceiveth him that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. So here again, we see this idea of a resurrection being used as a title to distinguish which beast they're talking about. So this phrase, was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, is basically just another way of saying the same thing. It is an identifier as to which beast we're talking about. It's the one that was, lived, is not, 
died and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, or come back from the dead. Arthur Pink, an early English Bible scholar who wrote extensively on the Antichrist, agrees. He says the following, A further reference to the resurrection of the Antichrist, his coming forth from the bottomless pit, is found in Revelation 17.8. It is to be noted that the earth dwellers wonder when they behold the beast that was alive and is not, now alive and yet is, raised again. The world will then be presented with the spectacle of a man raised from the dead. Pink, as well as many other people, associate the phrase coming out of the bottomless pit in Revelation 17.8 with the apparent resurrection of the Antichrist in Revelation 13. We will see explicit biblical proof of this interpretation at the end of today's study. The Bible uses the word abyss, which is translated here as bottomless pit in many different ways. It is a prison for spirits in Mark chapter 5. It's almost synonymous with the abode of the dead in the Old Testament. This word abyss is also the same word that the Apostle Paul uses to describe where Jesus went during at least part of the three days in which he was dead before he resurrected. For context, I'll start at verse 6 of Romans 10, 6, and 7. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, Who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or, Who shall descend into the deep? That word there is abyss that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. So the same word for bottomless pit or abyss is also the place where Christ came out of when he resurrected. We find more detail on this event in Acts 2, verses 27 through 32. This is during Pentecost, where Peter will start off in this quote by quoting from the Old Testament. He says, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, that word there is Hades, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Then he continues, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulture is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, again, Hades here, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Now, this is interesting because here the word Hades was mentioned as the place where Jesus' soul went when he died, when Paul says that it was the abyss. But we can see that contextually they are both talking about the place where Jesus' soul went during his death. My point is not to do an exhaustive theological study on this subject, but only to show you that Jesus went to the abyss at some point during his death. He may have also went to other locations in Hades, such as Paradise or even Tartarus. There are more references to this event in which I will leave for you to study further. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5, Matthew 12, 38 through 45, Luke 23, 43. My only point is that coming up from the abyss can be shown from scripture to mean resurrection from the dead. So these phrases are used like a title referring to the Antichrist's apparent resurrection from the dead. It is as if it's a chronology of his career and a title at the same time. He is the beast that lives, dies, resurrects, and ultimately meets his doom in perdition or in the lake of fire in Revelation 19.20. So I would suggest that the following phrases are all referring to not only the same person, the Antichrist, but the same identifying event in that person's life, his apparent resurrection. 
the beast that was and is not and yet is, the beast that was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, the first beast whose deadly wound was healed, the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit, and one more very interesting one that we will look at later. One issue I wanted to address, which I didn't there, is that some people, I think mainly because they simply don't like the idea of the Antichrist being raised from the dead, they think that, well, it has to be Satan that raises uh, him from the dead if he raises from the dead, so therefore I need to argue against this. So they try to limit this passage in Revelation 17 to just be about the kingdom of the Antichrist and not the Antichrist himself. They'll say, well, the Antichrist kingdom resurrects, and they've got all kinds of theories, and everybody's got a theory about which kingdom resurrects and what that means about resurrection and things like that. And while I think that there's no doubt that the kingdom of the Antichrist is also in view here, it's also talking about the man of the Antichrist as well, and there is no contradiction. As I've said many times in this study, I think that scripture demands that you see the heads of the beast in Daniel and Revelation 13 and Revelation 17 as both kings and kingdoms, as it says, I think, directly in Revelation 17, 9 through 11. And if you try to limit it to just one or the other, oh, the heads are just kings or the heads are just kingdoms, then you will run into unresolvable contradictions at some point. You must see them as both. So let's go through this. In this case, in Revelation 17, there's a lot to parse out, but as I detailed, I consider the was and is not and the abyss language to be analogous with the healing of the wound language of Revelation 13, therefore applicable to the king or human aspects of these heads. The next few verses, Revelation 17, 9 through 11, really apply to both aspects at the same time. And I think you're going to be able to see this better because of some of the things we've covered in the earlier episodes. The verses read, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. So let's think about this from the kingdom aspect first. If the seven heads of the beast are kingdoms, they are probably something like Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and the Antichrist kingdom. As I've said in earlier episodes, the Antichrist kingdom is really in two different stages. There is the stage during the first three and a half years in which he, through warfare, conquers the system of the ten kings which ruled the world before he arrived. And then, though it is technically the same kingdom with the same ten kings geographically, there is a second phase, the theocracy, which begins at the midpoint, where the Antichrist forces the entire world to actually worship him or die, i.e. the mystery Babylon phase. The interesting thing is that this works out perfectly if you substituted the king aspect here as well. And it works out because, as we've seen in the last episode, the resurrection occurs just before the midpoint, i.e. the moment when the kingdom changes to a theocracy as well. So you can have this concept of the Antichrist himself being an eighth, but still one of the seven as a result of his resurrection. And that same concept works for the kingdom. It doesn't change as well. They're the same, but qualitatively different. It's the same with both him as a person and his kingdom in this scenario. Though it should be said that the phrase, the beast that was and is not, is simply a reference to his resurrection only, which has become a title for the Antichrist since Revelation 13.3. 
Next week, we'll look at the Abomination of Desolation event and try to look at that from a different perspective, because I think when you see what the Antichrist is trying to do by sitting in the temple and declaring himself to be God, you're going to see parallels to what the actual Messiah will do in the Millennial Kingdom. But the resurrection of the Antichrist is key to that event as well. That incredible boast, that is to say that he is God, does not come out of nowhere. It comes from the fact that he is just publicly raised up from the dead. We have explicit information that this is why the world agrees to worship him in the first place, as we saw in Revelation 13.3. So the abomination event needs to be understood in that light as well. That's it for me. You can check out the podcast feed at BibleProphecyTalk.com or read all of my books for free at BibleProphecyText.com. 